Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have Larry Reed on with me again. He is the President Emeritus of FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, and he's the author and editor of several books, including Real Heroes and Excuse Me, Professor, Challenging the Myths of Progressivism. He's also the author of Was Jesus a Socialist? Why This Question is Being Asked Again and Why the Answer is Almost Always Wrong. Larry, thanks for joining us. Hey, Doug, thank you. I really appreciate you having me again. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to have you on always. And uh, thank you for your contributions to the message of liberty. And in more particular here, the message of liberty or the anti-message of socialism uh, as it pertains to Jesus Christ. You've written a book recently, Was Jesus a Socialist? And as I mentioned in the subtitle, it's like this question is being asked again. And I kind of have to wonder, are you getting tired of having to address this question or is this why the book was here? It's like, here, I wrote a book. I don't want to keep talking about this. (laughs) Well, my guess is I'll be talking about it till uh, my dying day because it just keeps coming back up again. But at least now I'm able to hand somebody a book and say, here, uh, I've dealt with that. Read it. And then if you have any remaining questions, uh, let's talk. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, this book used to be a pamphlet, uh, Render Unto Caesar, and this this kind of became a, either a follow-up or a more expansive version. Is that right? That's right. The uh, earlier essay was much shorter. It came out in 2015. This is uh, a very significant expansion of that, a lot of material that uh, I didn't have in the initial essay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at it here. It's uh, about 130 or so pages. So it's not super lengthy. So your socialist friends might actually read it. Um, (laughs) because it's not this like, you know, 300 page treatise or whatever, but it's very, um, to the point. It also really gets to some of the heart of the, the main questions that people who promote socialism would say, I mean, Jesus is used to defend just about every view a human wants Jesus to defend. I mean, I think we can kind of acknowledge that, you know, even libertarians would say, well, Jesus was a libertarian to which I say, no, but he's glad we are. You know, he he would like us to be in our context libertarians. At least that's my view, of course. Uh, But it would be kind of weird to say Jesus was a libertarian. Uh, But people also use the idea that Jesus was a socialist because, well, Jesus promoted things like taking care of the poor. And so he's inspiring to a lot of people who are anti-capitalists. Where do you think that comes from? Um, because a lot of people look at Jesus's teachings and they're like, well, see, look, it, it looks like Jesus would support what I have in mind here. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes, Doug, from people not fully understanding or appreciating uh, what socialism is and mm. what it uh, rests upon. There are so many people coming out of high school and college these days who, because of uh, what their teachers told them, they think that socialism is nothing more than helping people, sharing things, giving things to people in need, you know, uh, free stuff. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is uh, it's, it's just so superficial. I mean, there's a lot more sharing and caring and giving, philanthropy and so forth under capitalism than there mm-hmm. ever is mm-hmm. under socialism. Uh, what distinguishes socialism 
is, of course, it rests upon the use of force. It's the concentration of political power. So you really just have to dig deeper beyond those superficial bumper stickers uh, to discover and appreciate what socialism really is. And then you see how how false it is to claim that uh, Jesus's uh, uh, command that we help those around us is is not yeah. uh, that at all. Yeah, I mean, it seems like most people want socialism to be not particularly a system, although I know some people do. But, you know, the the street view of it is like, oh, well, socialism is sort of a philosophy of, you know, all those good things that you just mentioned that you and I would both agree with other than the free things. You know, we'd say, oh, well, we need to be nice and we need to share and we need to give and have, be compassionate and all these other things. And it's like, well, yeah, who, who's going to be against that? But when you institutionalize yeah. <laughs> it and make it a system from the government, it becomes, that's actually what historically socialism is. And obviously the trick in communicating with people about what socialism is, is that they're saying, oh, well, that's not what I mean. I don't mean, I don't mean gulags. I don't mean, I don't mean outright communism, although I've heard some <laughs> theological defenses of it. Um, so how do you begin to discuss with people what socialism is when it seems so hard to define? Because, you know, they're kind of like, well, that's not what I mean by it. I mean these principles. Yeah, uh, they do that all the time. In fact, uh, socialists don't even agree among themselves uh, as to what socialism is. Uh, there was a time in history, not all that long ago, 100 years or so ago, when uh, it was widely thought that socialism was government ownership of the means of production. But then when that was actually tried in places like the old Soviet Union and proven to be such a disastrous flop over and over again, uh, a lot of socialists said, well, that's not what we mean. Let's uh, try it a different way. Uh, what we mean is kind of just central planning of an economy. Mm, yeah. And there are other socialists say, well, no, what we mean is a welfare state. Um, you know, so there are different variants of it, but it always comes down to the use of force and concentrated power in the hands of the state. Uh, you know, under capitalism, uh, or freedom and free markets, if you want to practice, as some people have tried, the variety of socialism where you just share and share alike, put your uh, earnings in a common storehouse and distribute it equally. There have been attempts to do that, like the uh, Robert Owen communities of 150 years ago. Uh, you're free to do that. Just go ahead and you do it now. You don't have to wait for the government to impose it on anybody. Just go out yeah. to talk to your neighbors and agree with them to divide up your earnings and redistribute it equally. But not even socialists attempt to do that, even though they they advocate it uh, if the government could impose it. Seems to this might be a little bit too much of an aside issue, but it just it, I just want to point out the irony in young people today who really want to be sort of like, don't tell me who I am. Let me define myself. Let me be, you know, don't, don't tell me what to do are also, you know, and, and again, I don't want to overgeneralize here for young people per se, but people coming out of college and so forth. It also seems like those views are like, well, but at the same time, when we vote, we need to tell everybody else what to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a failure to put two and two together, a failure to see the logical implications of the things you've been advocating, failure to see the inconsistencies in your thinking. Yeah. And I think that's a testimony to the fact that in so many places these days, uh, we are not teaching uh, things like critical thinking skills, uh, logic, uh, let alone history and uh deep philosophy. It's just so mm -hmm. superficial. Much of it's just a lot of bumper stickers and virtue signaling uh, uh, rhetoric. Yeah, yeah. 
So in early on in your book, you talk about three parables that help us, you know, think through, you know, you evaluate them and you help us think through what, what it is that Jesus is teaching. You want to go over at least one of those? Yeah, I'd be happy to. There are, I think, nearly 40, as I recall, parables that Jesus tells, and most uh, have little or no direct economic content. They deal with salvation or eschatology, personal character, uh, and other things. But there are three that have substantial economic content, and uh, every single one of them ends up with a message that is strongly uh, supportive of freedom, free markets, private property, personal choice, uh, and uh, people exhibiting their character from their heart, not by how they vote. One of them is the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm amazed at how many people think that that parable uh, somehow makes a case for a welfare state. But it does (laughs) just, I mean, you've heard it too, it's crazy. But, uh, you know, consider the context of the story. You have a Samaritan who's on his way to his destination, and he comes upon a man along the road who's been beaten and robbed. And what does he do? Does he say to the the, uh, man in need, uh, well, you should uh, contact your social worker, or maybe there's a government program for you, or I'll see if I can find a politician who can help you out. No, what he does is, this is essentially what makes him a good Samaritan, he of his own free will chooses to help the man and does it with his own resources. Now, mm-hmm. how anybody can twist that into a case for the compulsory and politicized redistribution yeah. of wealth through government is beyond me. Well, and not only that, even to take it one step further, and again, this is a little bit of an argument from silence, but he he does it out of his own resources. He doesn't uh, go on GoFundMe yeah. and do it non... <laughs> I mean, he doesn't even do it in a group method nonviolently. Yeah. You know, yes. like you're making the point he does... Yeah, it's very personal. And of course, you know, the story, you know, could have been, you know, talked about in, in such a way that his community raises the money and goes and helps him. You know, it, that story could have been told and it wasn't. So I don't yeah. want to make too big a deal out of that one. Or, what about the parable that... I, I might say, if, uh, or if he was a hardcore Marxist, uh, that brand of uh, socialist, he, he might have said, I'll be right back. I'm going to go uh, uh, rob a few rich people's uh, homes. <laughs> And gather the loot and bring it here for you. I mean, <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go steal from your employer who made who made you work so hard you couldn't make it along the path yourself. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about the parable of the talents? Yeah, this is one of my favorites uh, because uh, at the end of it, uh, Jesus has uh, the man at the center of the parable uh, saying nothing uh, like what a socialist would say in a similar situation, Uh, a man is leaving his estate for a period of time, and he trusts three uh, men with uh, portions of his wealth. That initial distribution, by the way, is not uh, equal (laughs) for those egalitarians Mm -hmm. who might be listening. And then um, uh, he comes back later, and he says, okay, I want to find out what you each did with it. And he asks the first man, what'd you do? And of course, I'm paraphrasing here, but the first man says, well, you'll be happy with me. I buried it in the backyard, so I have just as much as you entrusted me with. But uh, Jesus has the the estate owner actually upbraiding the man, uh, basically saying, what, you didn't do anything with it? That's terrible. And then he goes to the second guy and he says, what'd you do with what I entrusted you with? And he says, oh, you'll, you'll be happy with me. I doubled or tripled the value. I made some great investments. I put it to work. I've magnified the wealth, and he's praised. And then the third guy says, 
essentially, those two guys are pikers. I, I did it even better than the second guy. I've magnified it by a factor of six or seven or whatever. He's the one that uh, the owner of the estate praises the greatest. And uh, then Jesus has him taking the money from the first guy and giving it to the third, co- uh, third guy because he knows how to magnify wealth. This is probably a good time to talk about the rich themselves. I mean, right now, we are recording mid-2020, and the coronavirus pandemic has apparently, according to many headlines, and I, I would even be okay taking it at face value, that the wealthy, the ultra-wealthy, are actually faring much better than the average person uh, during this crisis, partly because of government action, not necessarily because of free market action. But regardless of whether or not that's actually the case, it does seem to me that the wealthy are demonized and become villains way too quickly, especially yes. pretty decent, hardworking, non-rent-seeking business owners. Exactly right. And that's probably been the case uh, in most societies uh, throughout most of history. The, there's something about uh, human nature that has within it a, a very strong motivation to envy uh, and that's very unfortunate. It's something that uh, Jesus himself warns against on multiple occasions. Uh, in fact, he points out that he came to uphold the law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments in particular. And we all know that the uh, Tenth Commandment says, thou shalt not covet. In other words, don't count the other guy's blessings, count your own. Uh, now, because Jesus was also an advocate of things like honesty and fair dealing, uh, he would not support uh, anybody using political connections to get special favors at other people's expense. You know, that kind of mm-hmm. cronyism uh, is essentially dishonest, and Jesus uh, advocated honesty at all times. Uh, but uh, that's a small portion of all the people in the country you could classify as capitalist or entrepreneurial, people mm-hmm. who've started a business, they're creating wealth, they're employing people, taking risks. Uh, they are the lifeblood of any prosperous economy. I mean, if if nobody did that, if we all just sat back and expected uh, goods to come our way uh, without thinking about how and who would create mm-hmm. them, I think we'd be uh, in, in terrible shape. So, yeah, the rich are often singled out, but it makes some people feel good to attack them, maybe in part yeah. because in, in a lot of cases they don't know how to become rich themselves. And to them, it's becoming wealthy means you've got to work, you've got to invest, you've got to take risks, things that maybe they don't want to do. Yeah. Or, I mean, maybe that's not something that's in their wheelhouse per se, or maybe that's not even their desire, but to sort of translate that into, well, I'm going to demonize them and and stuff. That's kind of a completely different angle on it. What do you, so, but Jesus did seem to have a lot of warnings uh, and admonitions for those who had wealth. So it's not without some merit that we discuss what does Jesus what does Jesus even say about the wealthy? You know, you and I can sit here and yeah. lament economically why the wealthy shouldn't be necessarily demonized. What did Jesus have to say? Well, certainly there's no occasion, and it would be incompatible with everything else he said, where Jesus said that whether or not uh, you can be saved, whether or not you get to heaven will depend upon how much money you have. Uh, he was far more interested in uh, what's in your heart. He does warn on multiple occasions that uh, wealth often brings temptation. I think he would say the same about power, which is what socialists are all about and what they're trying to accumulate. Uh, but he, he warns that with wealth 
come temptations that uh, if your character is not solid, you might allow those temptations to take over your life. You might even end up worshiping wealth. And I always say, look, the best capitalist isn't one who worships wealth. Why would you want to do that? Uh, you would want to. You, uh, you don't want your wealth to run you. You want to run your wealth. That's mm-hmm, part of the secret mm-hmm. to good uh, entrepreneurship. So Jesus is saying, just be wary. And all you have to do is take a look on any given day in the news, from places like Hollywood or athletics, almost any walk of life, and you find that there are considerable numbers of people who, when confronted with sudden or great wealth, can't handle it. Uh, mm. They Then you really discover that they didn't have solid character, and now they begin worshiping that wealth. They allow it to yeah. corrupt them. That's what Jesus is warning against. But he'd be ecstatic about someone who kept the commandments, was faithful to, uh, to God, a solid Christian, accepted uh, Jesus as his Savior, and was a magnifier of wealth by mm-hmm. uh, producing things that other people want and need. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the gospel of envy. That word is, uh, I don't think you coined that phrase. I think that's a quote from somebody, right? Yeah, I'm trying to remember who said that first. Uh, a lot of people have. I'm not sure who may have used it first. Yeah. What's the What's the concept there? Because, I mean, the good, okay, we, we translate that to the good news of envy. And I don't know of any person even unwittingly realizing uh, or unwittingly uh, promoting such a thing would say that there's any good news about envy. Um, so what is what is meant by that phrase? Uh, yeah, by the way, I think I just remembered uh, Winston Churchill, at least, is famous for his reference to the so-called gospel of envy, mm. although I don't know that he was the first uh, to use it. So by the gospel of envy, this is this is the a way of thinking that says, if somebody else is better off than me, well, then by definition, I'm a victim, and he's the uh, victimizer, and that the remedy in this situation is to punish that person by taking something from him irrespective of how he uh, came into uh, the possession of it. You know, most socialists don't uh, make a difference between a business person who has come upon great wealth because of his political connections and the many others who simply are being rewarded in the marketplace voluntarily by very happy customers. Mm. Uh, there is a huge difference there. But if you envy uh, another person and that leads you into invariably very negative uh, behaviors. It causes you to focus not on improvement of yourself, but rather tearing the other guy down. It uh, causes you to want to embrace political solutions to so-called problems instead of uh, voluntary, persuasive uh, change that is uh, peaceful. Envy, I don't know of any case in world history where a people who became envious uh, were in any way uplifted. It's a, it's a sinister motive mm-hmm. that leads to uh, evil, I think, because it's evil in its very essence right from the start. Yeah. When I was in Bible college, I was taught uh, the Baptist theology of separation of church and state. And one of the verses that the professor took us to was the passage which you you deal with and for a different context render unto caesar and the idea is that there are things that are gods that we deal with you know spiritual things and then there are political things um that's not quite what it means what's your take on that yeah by the way i i think if i'm not correct uh not incorrect i mean i think you helped me uh, with this particular passage i quoted you in the book i think in this context so thank you uh, for, for your <laughs> assistance. 
Uh, I know You're welcome. Some socialists look at that statement from Jesus, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. And they seem to think that it's some kind of blanket endorsement by Jesus for just about anything that uh, Caesar claims is his, uh, no matter how he proposes to get it <laughs> or what mm-hmm. he does with the money once he takes it. I mean, that, that's absurd. How out of context could, would that interpretation be given what we know of all the other things that Jesus had to say? This was a very clever response on the part of Jesus to a group of Pharisees who were trying to trick him. They wanted to get him to say something that they could run to the Roman authorities with and say, aha, it sounds mm-hmm. like he's promoting tax evasion. So if you look at it in that context, you realize that, wow, could there be a more clever and uh, uh, incisive response than this one? Render unto Caesar that which is his. He doesn't say it is his. He doesn't certainly doesn't say everything is Caesar's or anything he claims may be his. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He leaves it to us to decide whether or not it really does belong to Caesar. And one of those yeah. options is, it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe nothing yeah. does. But he doesn't uh, get into the nitty gritty of what government should do, how big yeah. it should be. That's up yeah, to it's us. It's kind of a passage that you don't want to uh, use to defend that sort of split view. You know, I, do you know who Jim Wallace is? Uh, I don't think so. He founded Sojourners, which is a sort of progressive left Christian organization from the 70s, I believe they started. Oh, it rings and, a distant uh, bell. Uh, so he he actually did a debate against Greg Boyd, who is he's not a libertarian, but he's way more on our side of things with respect to uh, Christians' relationship to the state. He did a debate with Greg Boyd, and and somebody asked him, uh, asked Jim what the what the meaning of uh, render unto Caesar was, and he he went through this explanation that basically Jesus was trying to make the point that nothing belongs to Caesar, and I I remember thinking, oh wow, that's like really good because. Like that yeah. Jesus is making this more more meta point, which is what you said. This is one of the possible answers. Um, and Boyd was like, "Yeah, I don't have any follow up to that. That's that's the best answer I've heard too." <laughs> and they were in the <laughs> middle of a debate. Um, so that that stuck with me. I mean, I I probably listened to that debate probably eight years ago or something. But it's just interesting to me that uh, a person who has has deli- has uh, explicitly said that Jesus would call for redistribution of wealth actually has that perspective. So maybe he was using it in a different different way, like, well, everything belongs to God and therefore, you know, taxation is not theft or something. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, that's fascinating. But so credit where credit is due. Uh, Norman actually helped you with that chapter on render unto Caesar. Um, but I do remember you reaching out to me um, and it was the it was the passage on on wealth, on uh, on rich people. Ah, okay. Uh, okay. That, that's where that's where uh, I assisted you a little bit. So anyway, we, we were happy to help you. It was, uh, it was glad to know that you reached out to us uh, to help you out with this uh, project. Hey, um, my, my pleasure. Yeah. So one of the things you say in your book is that socialism nullifies the golden rule. That's a pretty bold claim, I think. So can you uh, spell that out for us? Yeah, I think the golden rule implies uh, voluntary interactions between people. Uh, as opposed to coercive, uh, uh, compulsory interactions. Uh, Do unto others uh, what you would have others do unto you, uh, which Jesus himself gives expression to uh, in the New Testament. Uh, Well, the question then is, uh, would you want somebody else to push you around, tell you how to run your life, take your stuff, put you out of business, tax you excessively? Probably not. Uh, so why would you want to do that to them? Uh, mm-hmm. I, 
socialism is is a system, as we've mentioned, that rests upon force, on uh, ugly things like envy and presumption, as if uh, a, you know an elite at the top with political power know better how to run your life than you do, and so they end up uh, exerting all kinds of uh, undue pressure on people through the police power of government, and uh, probably none of them would want others to turn it around and use it on them. Yeah. So I this brings up sort of a, I don't know, I don't know where to place this question in terms of categorizing it, but I'll, I'll just kind of maybe ask it. So when libertarians and politics in general in the United States tends to be, now coronavirus has helped change this a bit because governors have been, you know, very much in the, the spotlight for each person wherever they are. But most of the time, politics is about national politics, not really, at least in terms of the discussion about, you know, what would Jesus do or how would Jesus vote? Who would Jesus, you know, vote for president, all that kind of stuff. It's very national. And I often wonder how is, is it socialism when you have a community of, say, five, 10,000 people come together and build a park um, or, or have, you know, you know, half a percentage of uh, your income or property taxes or whatever it might be, you know, goes to local taxes and it built, you know, you build a park and do fire protection and, and, and all of that kind of thing. Or are we talking about larger scale? Like, does it become more socialism as you scale up? Or how do you, how do you assess that kind of, uh, I, I hope you're getting to what my question is here. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, if it's voluntary, it's not socialism. If it's compulsory, even if it's imposed by majority vote, and even if it's very local, well, then it, it certainly uh, has socialistic tendencies. Well, then we can ask ourselves, all right, let's for a moment accept that uh, a community coming together to uh, implement a, a public park is somewhat socialistic. Would it be any better if uh, a more distant level of government were to do it instead of that local community? Probably not. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, if there's going to be a local park and compulsion to fund it, and create it, uh, you know, I'd much prefer that that be done as locally as possible because that makes that government entity more accountable. Um, it, the, the further the government is from an activity or from the people that are directly impacted, the more likely you will have uh, indifference, yeah. apathy, corruption, inefficiency, waste of money, and all that kind mm -hmm. of thing. So yeah. even, even if uh, we were to accept it for a moment that it's uh, – we can embrace it even if it's socialistic. It's still better to do it at the most local level possible. Yeah. It seems like you get more trouble the, the more centralized you become. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the lessons of history. And and, and don't forget, it, some things may seem like, well, that's the only way that public park can get done. Well, not necessarily. Uh, some amazing things have been done by private people, mm -hmm. uh, including some really massive uh, park-like activities and, and ventures. Uh, mm -hmm. Last I heard, Disneyland is not uh, run by the government. Yes, but not everybody can go there. <laughs> Well, I suppose, but <laughs> I can't go to a park in your town either because it's about 800 miles away. <laughs> yeah, but you could. Like, if you wanted to visit, you probably could. I think that's the argument most people would say is that, that you know, it's kind of open access, which, of course, you and I both know have economic uh, complications to it. 
Yeah, and it's true that Disneyland does charge admission, uh, but where would be the justice in forcing Grandma from Bad Axe, Michigan, uh, to pay in taxes uh, so that you and I can go to Disneyland in Orlando? I mean, what's yeah, what's yeah. wrong with a user fee? Well, yeah, no, I agree, uh, of course. And I think that's where when you get to the local community level, it makes a little, it's less, um, it's less offensive for yeah. sure. And it's less um, problematic, I should say, you know, for, yeah. for someone to, you know, go around and canvas and say, hey, we want to put up a new park and, you know, it's only going to cost you this much per year, you know, so that we can all enjoy it. You know, it's very different from saying, hey, you know, some politician who didn't even have a chance to vote for, yeah. Um, is making sure that the politician you did have to vote for but didn't uh, goes along with their plan, <laughs> you know, so it just gets really, you know, the further along, the further away it gets. So yeah. I, I always think about, this is just me, I always think about how do you define the word we when we say we do something. Yeah. Um, the, the further and further away the decision-making gets from we the people, mm-hmm. uh, the less and less we it is and the that's more right and more problematic it is that's the that's kind of the way i think about it the more you have a lot of those we's saying wait a minute you didn't ask me or mm-hmm, <laughs> i'd mm-hmm. really rather uh, put my money to other uses than the one yeah. you forced me to to do yeah yeah for sure so i we get this question fairly frequently when people are just sort of getting into christian libertarianism and and understanding like well where are good places and resources to read and so at the end of your book, you have um, some Christian thinkers and theologians who got it right. And I think our listeners would really love to know, like, hey, if, if they want to read more, you know, thinkers that, you know, came before us, what could they read? Who Who is, uh, I don't want to use the word safe, but who is within sort of like, within arm's reach of where we stand on this issue? Yes. Uh, well, the two that I wrote about near the end of the book, uh, are my favorite, and uh, not only because I think theologically they were deep thinkers uh, and genuine men of God who sought the truth no matter what, but when it comes to matters of the proper role of government, I think they got that right too. And uh, one of them was C.S. Lewis. Now, uh, set alongside of the massive amount of material he wrote that is theological in nature is a pretty small portion that deals with matters of uh, government and the role of the individual versus the state and so forth. But boy, every time he addressed that, uh, he got it right. He he understood that uh, human beings are seriously flawed, that we, are, uh, we have a sin nature. And the last thing you should want to do is to concentrate earthly political power in flawed human beings, because that simply mm-hmm. gives them an opportunity to uh, put that uh, uh, kernel of evil to a huge and destructive uh, application. So he was interested in uh, diffusing power for that very reason, because he understood human nature and he realized that we should not be worshiping government anyway, uh, no matter what, because it's uh, it's a human flawed institution and uh, very quickly will uh, push God aside and try to put itself at the center of your life. Mm-hmm. The other theologian was J. Gresham Machen, who was the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian uh, denomination and also of Westminster uh, Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, he lived uh, uh, in the early part of the 19th, of the 20th century. He testified in Congress in the 1920s when a proposal came forth to create a federal department of education. And I 
uh, have quoted from that uh, in an article or two at fee.org. And oh my gosh, I mean, he, he nailed it. He re- realized that uh, education was not a state responsibility. And if you put the state in charge of education, here's the kind of uh, nasty stuff that will follow. Uh, and he was a, a solid man of God who read scripture uh, for what it was intended to convey and didn't try to twist it until it confessed uh, to things that uh, socialists mm-hmm. would like it to say, but which it doesn't. So both of those men are, no matter what they wrote in theology or otherwise, uh, I think J. Gresham Machen, C.S. Lewis are great men. And I also have high praise in the book for Augustine uh, from the 5th century uh, A.D., I think uh, to the extent he dealt with these earthly political matters, he tended to see the state for what it was as well and was a believer in individual liberty. Yeah. So what's on the horizon for you? Are you working on any new projects or books that we can look forward to? Well, I, you know, I'm primarily an article writer. I've, uh, I think I've written eight or nine books, but probably 2,000 articles. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of uh, – another subject that I'd love to explore and write about. Uh, just did an article a few days ago, you can find at uh, fee.org about an ancient civilization that a month ago I knew nothing about called uh, oh. Khazaria, K-H-A-Z-A-R-I-A. And the more I read, the more uh, thrilled I was to learn about uh, what a tolerant people they tended to be. Uh, they were magnificent traders and they had a largely decentralized government, and they were around for about 350 years until hmm. um, where did they you were inv- where did this come across to you your knowledge how, or how did you learn about this? Oh, that's a good question. It was so often I get an idea for writing something based upon just a casual reference in another book. You know, some hmm. somebody just drops it in a single sentence, and I'm thinking, holy cow, there's got to be a message there. I, I want to hmm. look into that. I think that was the case with uh, Kazaria, but I can't remember where that initial impulse came from. One of these days, I'll be able to follow the the threads again uh, that I read (laughs) in my (laughs) stage of life. I don't quite have that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sort of semi-retired, so I have more time now to read and write. And I also have my own website, uh, lawrencewreed.com, where people could read that article on Kazaria or Kazaria and other things too. Well, great. Well, I appreciate you, Larry. All you do for, uh, you know, you've advised us in the past um, and you just you just crank out really great material. So we will we will promote that on the show notes page. And I appreciate you joining us for the episode. Hey, it's been my pleasure, Doug. And keep up the great work. Uh, The Libertarian Christian Institute is vitally needed. You're filling a void and I wish you all the best. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. 
Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.